everyone, welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, this is a major guest. This is a huge one for us. John Reese Speedo from the Hot Snakes, who have a brand new record coming out, from uh, Drive Like Jehu, from Rock from the Crypt, from Pitchfork, this is an amazing episode, everyone. The Swami, the Swami from Yo Gabba Gabba. My kids are impressed this guy's on my show. More on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to Damien. Oh, no, no. Just, you know what? Just send me an email. Turn out a punk podcast at gmail.com. You can find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. If you use Facebook and you want to get in touch with me, you can find this show over on, uh, turned out of facebook.com slash turned out of punk, or just search turned out of punk on Facebook. It's run by my brother and show producer and John, uh, Reese guest getter, Tristan Abraham. Uh, so if you, if you appreciate this guest, say thank you to him. This was all his doing, putting this together. I have thanked him profusely. Uh, and uh, if you would like to support this show, the best way to do that is by subscribing to it on iTunes, writing a review for it, and rating it. Thank you to people that keep putting up those reviews and ratings. Um, if you do, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and if you uh, do not use iTunes, just tell your friends. Tell all your buddies uh, that there's this show out here that you got to check out. And, uh, yeah. And also, this show would not be possible without the loving help and support from the fine folks at Vans. Vans, of course, came aboard and said to me, we want you to keep doing this podcast, do whatever you do. We're just going to make sure that you don't have to pay for doing it, which was great. Because, you know what? I didn't want to have to pay for doing it. Cause that sucked. Uh, and, uh, they, uh, said book whoever you want. And so I keep going out there and booking whoever I want or Tristan who keeps going out there and booking whoever he wants. And, uh, it's been great. I'm really enjoying this ride. I'm having a fun time. We got a lot of great guests coming up too. It's it, wow. We got some great guests coming up too. Um, and we have a great one this week. John Reese, uh, you may know him as Speedo. You may know him as the person from the Hot Snakes, from the Sultans, from uh, uh, Yo Gabba Gabba, from Rock from the Crypt, from Pitchfork, from Drive Like Jehu. Yo Gabba Gabba is the one that he is most famous for in this house, I assure you, with my kids. Like, I, my wife and I love him for various musical projects, of course, but. We're outnumbered by the kids, and the kids love him as the Swami, and also for his music projects as well. Uh, he is someone that I've wanted to talk to for a long time, and someone I've never really had a chance to sit down and talk to. Like, I, I think I met him once or twice on the road, but that's just really in passing, and certainly never had the chance to punish like this, because this is why I love doing this show, is because I get to sit down and have these sorts of conversations with people, which are completely inappropriate to have in the real world and in any other context but a podcast. Um, I get to ask him about everything. We talk about some really cool stuff here. There's some stuff that comes up on this episode that whew, had me flipped. And this is why I love doing this thing, If because once in a while I get my, my, my wig flipped by something on a show. Uh, this is a fun one. This is going to be one of many, I assure you, because there's a lot more to get to. Um, but I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I'm going to let you sit back, 
relax, and enjoy Speedo on Turned Out a Punk. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Damien. I'm really stoked to be on your show. Well, as I was just telling you off air, this is like, you know, you're one of these white whale guests for me that when my brother told me that you were going to come on the show, it was a huge smile on my face because you're one of the few people that I can talk to about Pusshead and Nemesis Records <laughs> and Sub Pop and like all these worlds that only connect through that are just all so uncool <laughs> what are you talking about if they're uncool this is the lamest place on earth so uh, um that's this, funny this is well like, a white well i am then <laughs> well let me bring you aboard moby dick because this is going to be a thrill for me um but i gotta start this off john the way i start them all off which is how'd you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre of course, yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. I know exactly where I was. I know what time it was. Um, yeah, I was I was at school, uh, seventh grade, uh, first day at a new school, and uh, I went to. I opted not to go to a school in my neighborhood. I went to a school that was um, it was called a magnet school. And what they did is, since funding for schools were so low. Um, I knew I wanted to do something. I, I was like kind of a theater kid and I wanted to do something that was kind of, you know, drama theater related. So I went to this school where all the funding that they would use for sports and all that stuff was used for their performing arts and visual. They did, they did visual arts and music there as well. Mm-hmm. And they used that money to kind of fund, fund those electives. And, uh, so the schools in Southeast San Diego, which is kind of a, not a real rough neighborhood, but you know, by San Diego standards, yes, kind of a rough neighborhood and took the school bus about, you know, 45 minute ride to this new neighborhood. I'd never been to before with all these kids that I'd never met before. And there was a kid named Ian, Ian Rarty, still a friend of mine today. And he brought a tape player to school and it was the kind of tape player. It wasn't, it wasn't a ghetto blaster. It wasn't a boom box. It wasn't, it was a tape recorder. One of those things that you would use a mono tape recorder, like you would use to like kind of dictate, you know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, uh, wasn't something really designed to kind of play music. He brought one of those in his backpack and he had a cassette and we were just, I met him in my first period class and we were walking to the second period class and he got the cassette from a friend's older brother and on one side was the sex pistols and on one side was black flag and we listened to this i think we listened to the sex pistol side a little bit first and i was like yeah that's kind of cool and then flipped it over and listened to the black flag side and um that was truly the first punk rock where i was kind of like listened to it and kind of was like you know it wasn't just in passing you know i was Mm -hmm. like sat down with it and listened to it and we played it over and over again. And, you know, it just was like, it just, it just felt so strange because it was like, these are like crazy people <laughs> making crazy music. It wasn't even like, this is punk rock music. It was more like, this is like, this is like crazy people music, you know, music made by people who are insane and it felt really like felt like we were doing something wrong just by listening to it like this is this is just so out there 
um, you know, I used to be into to Kiss. You know, I loved mm-hmm. Kiss. I grew up on Kiss, and Kiss kind of seemed like, you know, comic book heroes come to life. So there was a fantasy there. So when I was listening to this, this to to Black Flag was kind of like, I kind of like listened to it the way I would listen to Kiss records. Like, so these are like, these are like comic book characters that are like crazy people that um are are just like uh musically just coming from just i you know I, I there was no reference for me i didn't know where it was coming from and it didn't sound like the sex pistol side of the cassette by the time we flipped it back over that just sounded kind of like classic rock you know <laughs> it didn't really sound like anything that was really that um it just it just kind of was like well we kind of skipped over this you know we didn't really need this had you um, seen any but, oh sorry go on no, so that was the first. Yeah, that was that was kind of the first exposure. H- had you seen any of the like media reports about the Sex Pistols or like you know just like the Chips Punk episode or any of those kind of like pop culture kind of signposts I, about it? I I don't know because I want to say by the time I saw like the Quincy Punk episode yeah. and all that stuff, I'm like I already knew about it by then. Yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, I already knew that like that was so cheesy, you know, like, <laughs> um, and I actually thought it was funny, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think what was the Quincy. I don't remember. It was something like, I saw a blind man the other day. I took his pencils and I ran away. I think yeah. that's the lyrics. The What's that band called again? Is it like... I don't I don't remember, but it was a very yeah. punk name. I'll, I'll fix that in the intro. I'll put it in the intro notes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it, it's... Were you kind of a music kid? Because obviously you went to this magnet school. Like, was that already an interest for you, music? Yeah, I, I had a guitar and kind of, you know, played around with it a little bit. But it wasn't until... See, that kind of like getting into punk and playing music went hand in hand because then I felt like here I can play this kind of music. You know, Mm -hmm. this is something that I want to play, not because it wasn't like I could play it because it's easy. It's more like I could play this because you don't need to be a technical shredder. You don't need to be a a virtuoso. You know, you could just basically kind of come up with have some ideas and write a song, you know, and and it could and it could be great. So that's when I really started playing guitar a lot is when I kind of got into the punk, you know, and you know, like it is for probably everyone. It's like at that age, it became, you know, it became an identity too for me, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, mm-hmm. this is what I am, you know? So, well, yeah. Where did you kind of go immediately after, you know, you've got this dictaphone cassette in hand, but where was the next step for you? Well, then it was just like all the records that you could buy at like tower records and we had a record shop in uh, Pacific Beach, San Diego, where I grew up, called Licorice Pizza. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it was like the cramps, you know. And then it was like Adam and the Ants. <laughs> yeah. And it was all this stuff that was kind of like, we. Just, I just thought it was all punk. You yeah. know, it wasn't really like, it wasn't like, uh, you know, Adam and the Ants seemed like a punk band just because, like, okay, you know, this is kind of all in the same kind of genre. It wasn't until later that it was like, oh, no, that isn't, you know. <laughs> There's these rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you got to um, find out about the rules at some point. Yeah, and, and you know, and then um, San Diego had a band called Battalion of Saints, which yes. was such, a, um, such an influential band because not only did they make amazing music, but they, would, they were from here, and they would play with bands like you know, GBH or discharge and bands that were like larger kind of, kind of punk bands would come here and they would open for them and they would just blow bands off the stage always, you know, they were just so great. Um, that was a little bit later, you know, early on, it was just like a lot of just like, yeah, like we listened to a lot of cramps 
And, uh, and yeah, Adam and the Ants and Black Flag. <laughs> <laughs> was, was licorice pie? That's a chain, right? Cause they have that one in, uh, licorice pizza. I don't yeah, know. If it was pizza, a chain. Uh-huh. Isn't there a Black Flag licorice pizza seven inch? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I got to look that up, but I thought Thirsty and Miserable came out as like a freebie at that record store. Oh, wow. Very well could have. Yeah. Which um, which I always wonder if that was also an inspiration on you guys because obviously, you know, now we're in the midst of the quote unquote vinyl resurgence. But if there's one band that deserves credit for keeping the innovative kind of flame alive during the lean years of records, it's it's you guys. Well, it was, it's just, you know, it was fun, put out, it's fun to put out records. You yeah. Know, it's always, especially when it was one of the things where it's like, it was a way, you know, pre-internet to put, to get your ideas out there quickly. Mm-hmm. And like, this is what we're about right now, you know? Um, very few bands thought of putting pogs in there, which is, let me tell you, that was an innovation that blew me away as a young person. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Well, I just, you know, I, I just kind of got into to playing pogs trip to Hawaii because that's kind of where it started. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I just thought it was really cool. You know, I'm not really much of a collector, but I, you know, as far as like, I wouldn't call myself really a, a, a collector of of stuff and things. But then when I look around my house and my my rooms and everything, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I kind of I kind of do get kind of into stuff. And um, yeah, <laughs> and the pogs were kind of like, <laughs> now I used to be into marbles when I was a little kid, so I just thought of it kind of like marbles, you know. Well, yeah, because you're buying these records, you know, like obviously not collecting them, just amassing them at this point. Um, where did you go for your first show? Like, what was your first sort of live experience with this? With, with first punk punk rock? Well, show? just in, actually, what was your first show in general? The first show was I saw the Jackson Five at the San Diego Sports Arena. I was probably I don't know how old I was, probably like seven, eight. My parents took me, and I was a massive Jackson Five fan. Used to love their their Saturday morning cartoon and uh yeah so that was a that was a big thing for me and um and then my parents took me to like shows that they wanted to go see um Mm. and then but the next show I remember just really begging to see was like Kiss and uh and again I was in I was in fifth grade for that one Mm -hmm. my parents took me to that one oh man I was just so stoked that my you know I got there I was so like mortified that like oh going to a show with my parents you know but then when i got there it was like basically all kids my age with their parents and there was like moms with like big rainbow afro wigs you know trying to be cool and i was at that point i was like oh man i'm so grateful that my mom didn't wear a big rainbow afro wig be cool at the kiss concert yeah at that point you're like no i just don't want to go like please just, yeah. let's just stay home please uh so w- yeah what was your first sort of punk show then um after the kiss stuff well uh def it was black flag i saw them Whoa. in um i guess it was 1984 so you know because of my age i had already missed all the like kind of like the, the stuff that later I got into, you know, when I, when I got into kind of like hardcore, like all the stuff that I really liked mm-hmm. had already kind of like, was already kind of done by that point, you know, what but, was, um, was there a local scene? Like who are some of the local bands that kind of survived to that point? Battalion of Saints, were they, they cause they, they came were back. Definitely still going. Yeah. yeah. They were still going there. Their, um, the EP was out, but the, um, but, uh, the, the second LP second coming hadn't yeah. come out yet. Um, what up, what up, what was okay so okay mystic records they yep. definitely put out some san diego bands there's a band called manifest destiny 
or deviate uh, from San Diego that did the split with uh, their Hollywood what? Sound Comp. They did this. They did it as a split with Battalion Saints too. At them, deviate. Yeah, I think it was deviate. I, I don't know. If, I don't think they were from San Diego. They could have been, okay. but I never saw them play, and I never. They weren't on any shows that I ever went to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Probably not then. <laughs> um, this band called the Insolence. Oh, yeah. um, uh, who else was from there was there was quite a few bands but none of them were good they, yeah. they were all pretty bad <laughs> um, uh, the Italian Saints were the only ones that were really really kind of a cool band there actually was a great scene a thriving scene of like kind of like garage kind of psychedelic and, and also kind of like I guess you would call kind of like more like like 60s kind of beat like Paisley Music, Under- was, is, is like Paisley Underground kind of stuff. Um, no, more more kind of like bands like the Crawdaddies, oh, and yeah. the Morlocks, and stuff like that. Um, harder bands, bands that were yeah. basically kind of punk bands, but decided to wear a different uniform and call it something else. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> um, but and, and those bands were 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 great. Those were that was probably the best thing going on at San Diego at that time, but. I wasn't really that into it, you know, mm-hmm. at the, you know, looking back, I mean, I did like the Morlocks quite a bit, but I was kind of more into just, you know, things that were just a little bit more severe. Yeah. What's the age? You know, that, yeah. That you need to get that youthful aggression. You got to get out still. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it was like, it's about, it was a lot of, it was about identity too. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I identified with it and, and it was like, okay, this is what I, this is what I'm into. This is who I am. So, uh, when did you when did you first start playing in bands? What was your first band? The first band I was in was it was a kind of a revolving door of band members. Just it was hard to get people to play with. Um, but the first band was called uh, Coitus Interruptus, and we just <laughs> played a couple a couple parties and stuff. And then we really liked our logo, which was in uh, in an uppercase I with a C in the middle. Okay. Um, and so we dis- we changed our name to uh, conservative itch, keeping the same initials. <laughs> and um, again, just played, we did play a couple shows, but mainly it was just kind of parties and stuff like that. Parties would always get broken up, you know, after a couple songs. Yeah. And I guess that's like also, you know, there probably wasn't very many clubs for like, even now in San Diego, it's hard to play all ages shows. I found playing down there. Yeah. Yeah. It is hard. It is hard to play all ages shows. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, there was, um, the same, the, the, the Tim Mays who owns the Casbah, which is kind of, you know, in San Diego's CBGB's. He yeah, definitely started off just doing, you know, all the punk shows at halls and whatnot. I mean, it would, it always seemed like there would be a period of about like three or four months where all the shows would be in this one, one room and then something would go wrong and he would have to find another place. Mm-hmm. So that's the, uh, I guess the age old tale of the punk rock booker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> San Diego was really brutal. It was really violent. Um, not only were all the bands pretty terrible with the exception of Battalion of the Saints, it was also a very dangerous place to see a show. You would always end up getting in a fight and it wasn't like, it wasn't really like confrontation where someone would come up to you. It would be more like you'd just be watching a band and someone would just like hit you from behind for no reason. It was, it wasn't fun. We used to go up to LA where, you know, I mean, it was like at the time it was a lot of skinheads up there yeah, and, uh, and always a lot of violence, but we would go up to Los Angeles just because it's, it was, it was way more chill than San Diego. 
That that's amazing because yeah, you hear like you know like people have been on the show before and talked about having to move away from L.A. to get away from mm-hmm. the gang kind of stuff that was creeping into hardcore at the time and the violence. Right? Was it gang related stuff in San Diego, or is it just like no, people? No, it was wild? more just like I think it was more like a speed math kind of thing. Okay. Because like, um, the San Diego skinheads were they weren't really racist. I mean, most of them were like were Mexican Americans, you know? So they weren't, they didn't really have like a, any kind of, uh, yeah, they weren't like Nazis and stuff like that. They were just kind of like these guys that would get really fucked up and, um, and they liked to engage in violence, you know? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just them. There was other people too, you know, other people on the periphery that were just, just as bad, if not worse. And were they kind of like like would they just kind of go and see any band or were there specific yeah, bands? Yeah, because there's not a lot going on. Mm-hmm. So even if it was a band that maybe they didn't like, they would still just go. Yeah, because in a month maybe there was you know three punk shows, you know, mm-hmm. or four punk shows maybe if you're lucky, and you'd go to all of them because that's all there is to do. Mm-hmm. And so would, were like these guys also coming? They were coming to these parties too. Like that's why these parties would get busted up, or is it just cops over policing mm-hmm. punk shows? Yeah, it was more just like the noise, you know, yeah. within, within 20 minutes, some yeah. neighbor would call the cops and they would just be there. Um, they, they would go to parties sometimes, but usually that wasn't too much of a problem. Mm-hmm. What was, was the, the shows. what was the musical vibe of Coitus Interruptus? Uh, definitely like just hardcore, you know, yeah. kind of, uh, uh, TFM total fast music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It was a hardcore band. And what were some of the bands that you were into at that point? Like, obviously, you'd been that Black Flag show. Black Flag was a, a, a big one, Battalion of Saints. But what were some of the other bands that had come through or that you kind of hooked on? Oh, man, I really loved that first DRI 7-inch. I mm-hmm. thought that was just, like, super great. So it was kind of <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah. Um, Discharge, you know, um, still think that they're, like, one of the best bands ever. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who else? Um yeah, pretty uh, just a lot of real kind of primitive, kind of hardcore. You know, stuff with just not, not a whole lot of uh, changes and just uh, and pretty fast. You know, I was really into just strumming super fast. So I got into, I think I got I was more into just like the rhythm and the velocity of certain bands at that point. And then a lot of the stuff that I liked probably was terrible too. You know, because <laughs> It was also the age of where you could just like, you see a band, I mean, you see a band's record and there's an address on the back. And so you write them a letter and say, man, I really like your record. And then they write you back and they're like, cool. Thanks so much. That that's so awesome. You know? Um, Yeah. Like, were you like, like, Oh, what was that? What was that one band? Sons of Ishmael. That's a, that's a, I think that's a Canadian band. From Meaford, Ontario, John, an amazing reference. Yeah. uh (laughs) Yeah. So like bands like that, you know, I would just buy everything, you know? Hopefully you were not lumping them in the terrible category because that is like that's our that's no no no. I mean I I haven't listened to that single in forever. I can't even tell you what it sounds like right now. But I just remember yeah the, the orange cover and the the drawing. I think it's TFM. AC hardcore. That's what it is. AC, that's what yeah yeah. I was gonna say Hayseed hardcore is totally TFM. Yeah. Uh, so I was into stuff like that early. Okay. You know, uh, flag of democracy that yeah. for early seven and yeah, just, just stuff like that. And then later got into, um, you know, and then like later got into stuff like the first Decroitson record and, mm-hmm. 
and the wipers and stuff like that. And, you know, just kind of like still just considered it in the same spirit of the stuff I liked before. I just liked it a little bit more, you know, mm-hmm. it just seemed a little bit more relevant to what I was into. Did you guys record it all? Uh, no, we did try to, I, we had a four track and I didn't know how to use it. <laughs> Killer four track. And I was just like, I just couldn't figure out how to, how to fucking use this thing. It was like, uh, it was really complicated actually. Like you had to put these foil pieces on the actual, um, on, on the cassette in order for it to work. And I didn't know exactly where this kind of foil was supposed to, these foil stickers that they gave you with were supposed to go. Yeah. And, um, they ended up, you know, Tascam ended up making a, a machine that was very easy. But at the time, it was this Yamaha thing. I want to say it was made by Yamaha. And it was, yeah, it was very, it was very confusing. Yeah, it's amazing how, like, the, how easy the entry point to recording yourself is now compared to, like, uh-huh. even, even like a four track in general, like having to get that tape and, and then you got to EQ it right. And sometimes you master yeah. it too fast. It's a nightmare. Um, yeah. When, when you guys, you know, became, when, when the name change happened, did that band record at all? And did the sound change or just the name change? The, the sound did change. We got more into, um, you know, it was kind of, it was, it didn't get, it wasn't much improved, but with the name change, there was a couple people that kind of started, I started playing with that were more enthusiastic to, to be in a band. So yeah, we did get, we did get better. And, um, but we'd never recorded anything either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All my friends' bands were recording and putting out seven inches and tapes and everything. But um, it was just not to be for Conservative Itch. <laughs> so who were Conservative Itch's peers at the time? Um, okay. Well, Funeral March. I don't know mm-hmm. if they ever put anything, but they definitely had tapes. You know, everyone had had, had a tape out. Um, uh, socially Insecure. Um, I mean, these are all people who I'm still friends with that went on to play in all the bands and, you know, from San Diego and in the nineties and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, quite a few. It's, it's funny. Cause like San Diego, almost like Chicago to me seems like, you know, obviously there's great bands the whole way through, but it seems like in the late eighties, early nineties, throughout the nineties, that's when things really kick into high gear and same in Chicago too. Like the stuff that happened in the nineties there, I think is almost more impressive than what happened in the eighties. Oh, I know. Tell me about it. Like the Chicago had no good bands almost. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like for a city that size, you're like, wow. I mean, you know, it's always just like the effigies, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and articles of faith. faith. Yeah. I mean, that was a band that I got really into. Yeah. But, um, but there, yeah, there wasn't really that many bands. I, I always kind of marveled at that, but it's, it's almost like, it seems like the same thing with San Diego. It's like almost like, you guys, like the next wave of people like you guys were the people that were like, all right, let's do this. And then all those labels start and all the different sounds that come out of that, you know, community of bands is just incredible. Well, it was happening everywhere at that time, Mm -hmm. you know, not just San Diego, there was bands everywhere, you know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, I attribute it to specifically the violence that was happening in San Diego. Everyone just said, we can't have any more of this. This totally sucks. So we decided to kind of make our own scene and there's a place called the Shea Cafe that we all kind of adopted. It was this collective on the UCSD campus, this small little bungalow. And, uh, we just all started playing there, you know, and, uh, it's all ages and 
zero tolerance towards to for any kind of violent behavior. As a matter of fact, we made sure that they weren't even punk shows. There was a thing where um, early on it was like you could have you know punk bands could play there, but it couldn't just be like an all punk gig you know it had to be like a punk band with like a reggae band or something like that you know so it was pretty diverse mm -hmm. and um we all got exposed to a lot of cool music you know different kinds of music and it was also a place that kind of felt like our own clubhouse too you know we were able to kind of express ourselves and create something new and uh, yeah so that that i i really attribute it to that well yeah like it's like you said earlier if the casbah is you know, San Diego CBGBs, this would be the ABC, you no know, Rio Che Cafe. I, I got to play. Yeah. There. Like it lasted forever. It, it did. And it still kind of, kind of comes and goes. But mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we weren't 21 yet, so we weren't playing the gas box, you know? Yeah. So what that point is, is it pitchfork? That's the part, yeah, that's part of that pitchfork. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Pitchfork for sure. And how did pitchfork come together? Uh, pitchfork came together. I, I met, Rick, who later became the singer of Pitchfork, um, at this thing called the Anarchy Picnic. It was uh, at, uh, this anti-authoritarian newsletter called the Daily, the Daily Impulse. They would put on these kind of picnics, uh, and they were just get-togethers, you know? And uh, they had it at Balboa Park. And I went there, and I met Rick there with his friend Simon, who was in a really great band called blood lake and he went on to be in crash worship but he uh yeah met rick and he was kind of encouraging me uh to kind of start this band and he knew some people and uh and he introduced me to uh, this guy named don don ankrum uh the bass player of pitchfork see rick lived in north county and when you're when you're a kid and you don't have a car like north county san diego and San Diego kind of proper might as well be almost LA. I mean, you're not mm. walking up there. You're not taking a city bus, you know, mm. but once we started driving, it was like, okay, yeah, we can kind of, I can cruise up there. And I was always having a hard time finding people who were as committed as I was to being in a band. I really wanted it bad. I just wanted to be in a band so bad. And, um, yeah, so I met Don, Don knew this dude that played drums, Joey, and the three of us started playing and we recorded, a demo, a three piece as a three piece. We didn't have a singer. So the day, the night before we went to record, I just wrote some lyrics down and, um, just kind of sang for the first time in the studio on the fly after never really rehearsing it or anything. And, um, I was like, man, we should really get a singer. And Rick's like, well, I can sing. And it kind of, that was it. We got him in the band. Was that, is that that tape that, uh, you know, like the, the, the first tape you guys put out with the cover and everything? Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. That's only like how that's that quickly after you guys formed. That's awesome. That's a, that's a killer tape. Yeah. It was, it was, it was one of those, you know, first, ex first experience in the studio and, uh, you know, you don't know what you're doing. I didn't, I first 10 times I recorded in the <laughs> studio. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I still don't know really what I'm doing. I still know more about what I don't want as opposed to what I do want. But, uh, yeah, but that said, it's, um, yeah, it seemed cool at the time. I was stoked on the way it came out. And who are the influences that you guys are like, you know, kind of, you know, aiming for as, as like a young band? Well, that, okay. So right around then it would have been like all the discord stuff was like, you know, really, mm -hmm. really important to me. And, um, 
you know, squirrel bait. I like them a lot. Um, still really dug, uh, that first Decroitzen record, still one of my favorite records of all time. Uh, bad brains was really into, to them. Um, you know, just stuff that I just considered the classics. I don't know, you know. <laughs> well, it's uh, funny because like Squirrel Bait's a band that, you know, it's it's definitely a band that's almost forgotten. Like they would be better served if they were probably on anything but Homestead, I guess. Yeah, but I I bought all that stuff on Homestead. I, I kind of liked all of it, you know. Oh, it's a bet. Um, like Gerard Cosloy's run of picking bands on that label. It's insane when you go through that roster of who was on there. Yeah, yeah. I just look on the back of records and if I saw Homestead on it, I would just buy it, you know? Mm-hmm. It was just like, it's just like a label that unfortunately, I guess, because of all the issues with it on a, on a business level, uh, all those records just seem to be, you know, the ones that weren't picked up or like Sonic youth or, you know, dancer junior and stuff are just almost forgotten. Now it feels like. Yeah. 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 It was, uh, you know, there was only a couple record stores in town. So it just felt like when these things would come in, they were just precious, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is a time too, when you couldn't really buy, you couldn't buy an MC five record. Yeah. You couldn't buy a Stooges record. They just didn't exist. <laughs> Maybe if you went to like the swap meet, you might be able to find something. I mean, that's where I ended up, you know, getting, buying the, uh, Saint stranded is just at the swap meet. You know, someone just had it there. But if you went to a record store, you couldn't find any of things that we considered like the Holy Grail records that are still so easy to obtain now. Um, they just didn't exist. I mean, even Ramon, Ramon's records were hard to find. You know, I mean, you could find like end of the century when it came out. I could find that one, but I couldn't find the older ones. They just didn't. They just weren't in the shops. It was yeah. a really weird time. Yeah, no, it feels like that stuff is 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 weirdly more accessible now. Like as time has gone on. You know, you think with these things being, you know, pressed in small quantities in some cases or stuff that would be harder, but it just seems like it turns up more. Like I go to record stores every time now and I'm like, holy shit, how is this in the store? Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of times the store is not even a record store too. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Why, so, why while you're getting coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. we're, we're, this is always, you know, kind of, I've always wondered this and where did you, because obviously the name Rock from the Crypt is a tribute in some way to Rock from the Tombs. How was that on your radar at that point? Was that bootleg that came out or? It, the, okay, so this is the deal. I read about them in a zine and I was just, I knew about them for so long before I actually heard them. And it was always just, um, you know, it just seemed like a fantasy. Like, yeah. is, this, <laughs> was this really even a real band, you know? Um <laughs> You know, even in Pitchfork, we were really into Perubu, you know, yeah. and uh, so it was like, you know, and the Dead Boys. And so we we're just like, how how did this, how did this <laughs> thing even, what did this sound like, you know? Yeah. So, you know, our, our imagination is kind of just like filled in the gaps. And then that bootleg came out. I want to say, I got to dig it up. I want to say it's, it was a 12 inch with a 7 inch inside. 12 inch with well. a 7 inch, yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. So it was just kind of like that hadn't even that. I don't think that had come out yet. Well, maybe if it had, I hadn't seen it yet because I bought it after we were called that. But obviously very, you know, it was, it was an homage to the band. Yeah. And, you know, I tell people that it's like, you know, when you start a, I never had been in a band that really got outside of California. That never got outside of California. I mean, we would play TJ with Pitchfork um, a couple times, but, you know, we didn't really, 
we didn't we didn't really travel. So when Rocket started, it was like, who cares if we're we're naming it after another band? Who's ever going to uh, we're all you know just going to play some parties in San Diego? And uh, what's the big deal? It wasn't until we started kind of um, getting more popular, and also the the what was the myth of Rocket from the Tombs became, you know, reality because yeah. stuff was being reissued and, yeah. you know, it was like, okay, then you just, we had to kind of explain ourselves a bit. I always thought it was the coolest thing. Like when I found out about, you know, and, I, and once again, I much in the same way later on, uh, of course, but I kind of found out about Rocket from the Tombs, you know, reading about them way before I got a chance to finally hear it. Um, and it was, and then I'm like, oh my God, Rock from the Crypt, that's the coolest thing. Like I always thought it was, I imagine it helped them too, you know, like keep that sort of belief in them alive. Obviously the legacy of who these people went on to become as well. But like, I just think you guys were one of those people that was like, you know, helping draw attention to it at a time when there wasn't a lot of tension on it. Right. I mean, I have no idea, you know, they, they, I mean, I always just assumed they probably thought we were just ripping them (laughs) off, you know, or something, but I I have no idea. I hope the most curmudgeonly man in punk rock, uh, Dave can see past that and, and realize that it was a amazing tribute. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, when you, we mentioned playing shows in TJ, what was the scene like at that point? Cause there's like an unbelievable, you know, breadth of incredible Mexican punk bands, but what kind of bands were you guys playing with when you went to TJ? Well, it was mostly uh, San Diego bands mm-hmm. going down there to play. The mm-hmm. TJ punk scene was really small. There was a, a couple bands, Solution Mortel. Um, oh, there was another one too. Did like Massacre uh, 68 or any of those Mexico City bands ever come up there? Not uh, that hysteria? I know of. They might have. Okay. They might have, but not that I know of. I, I didn't hear about that. This was... M- it was more about like American bands going down there yeah. and playing. And then you could play at a bar and drink. Cause it's basically, it was 18 and up down there as opposed to 21 and up. And also they don't really check down there either. At least yeah. at the time they didn't. Yeah. So there was a certain amount of just kind of like lawlessness that kind of enabled us to kind of do the kind of shows that we wanted to do down there as opposed mm-hmm. to up here. Um, there were, there were Mexicans that would come out to the shows for sure but they weren't really integrated shows mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, um, which is unfortunate. I think it was still like, like when I got to f- play a show down there, um, you know, early two thousands, it was kind of still that way. Like it was even most of the kids, you know, we were playing to were from San Diego that had driven down to that show. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's a, it's a border, you know, San Diego is a border town mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and so is Tijuana, obviously. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the things that, you know, that, that make it kind of strange and isn't because it's like, Oh, it's because it's Mexico. It's more just because it's a border town. You know what I mean? It's like a lot of the problems and things that it has is is because it's a border town. So, um, it's, it's, it's on the up right now. You know, things are getting better down there and there's definitely, it's its own scene that doesn't give a fuck about what's going on really in the United States, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, so things things are 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 better down there. Yeah, I got than to spend, they were when I was a kid. You know. Yeah, I, I got to spend three weeks there this year, um, just filming stuff, and it it's yeah, it's like it's almost like Mexico. They someone told me down there, he's like, this is Mexico's Portland. At this uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. 
and I looked better around, or worse. and I was like, yeah, <laughs> if I had to describe it as something too, I'd be like, that might make sense. Um, so, uh, you know, how did you guys get hooked up with Nemesis Records? So, um, how did we get hooked up with them? Um, I think Big Frank mm-hmm. saw us play. Yeah, he saw us play. We were friends, kind of made friends with uh, this band called Reason to Believe. Yes. It was from um, up in the Long Beach area. They, they, you know, Big Frank worked at Zed's and he was also kind of the kind of stage manager for this place called Fender's Ballroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all the punk shows that, that would go on there, he was kind of responsible for um, getting bands on and off the stage and making sure that people aren't like jumping on the stage and breaking the equipment and whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, from as a kid going to shows up there, he was always kind of like the scary, just from <laughs> afar. He always just seemed like the scary dude, you know? And then, um, played some show and he came up, he's like, yeah, he wanted to do our record. And, uh, we were just like, Oh my God, we couldn't believe it. You know? So we ended up recording the seven inch at, um, radio Tokyo, which is, we went there just because we, you know, we were, you, we looked on the back of records. Where did, where did some of our favorite bands record? And we saw that the Minutemen had recorded at Radio Tokyo. So we're like, okay, we're going to, we'll go there, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, had a pretty good experience. And he put it out and it was just kind of like, yeah, it was all, it's all very casual, you know. Like, um, much in the same way as, as um, Homestead, like, you know, not in business practices, of course, but like just in like breadth of diverse kind of hardcore sounds that he was putting out. Nemesis is like a crazy, amazing label. Yeah, it's really weird. Like I was friends with some of the bands, but some of the bands represented the stuff that I didn't really like, you know, <laughs> what was going on. Um, um, I, I saw it as like a movement in punk rock music that was um, that was kind of like a step in the wrong direction, you know, musically and attitude wise. Um, but that was just me, you know, mm-hmm. and Pitchfork would play with a lot of these bands and um not necessarily the bands themselves, but the audience from some of these bands really had no use for what Pitchfork was doing. I mean, we were not, re- we were never received well on any of those shows ever, <laughs> ever. <laughs> it was just, it always was just, you know, we didn't look punk enough and, you know, um, we weren't fast enough and, uh, we didn't have play, you know, plenty headstock guitars. Then we didn't, um, you know, we didn't look like jocks cause at the time that was kind of what it became, yeah. you know, very jocular and, uh, sportswear music. Yeah. It was, it was really weird. It was weird. I was like, I just didn't get any of it. And then also, you know, a lot of sobriety, um, which is fine. Um, you know, it's weird. I, I, we used to smoke pot and consider ourselves straight edge cause we didn't really <laughs> think of it as like a necessarily just all about drugs you yeah. know i don't know yeah. um but, the, but that yeah. was never a thing was that a big thing in, at all in san diego like straight edge or was it more just like a, it was a, a little late yeah no it became something later yeah, yeah for sure yeah it was the scene and you know i wasn't you know it i didn't have anything to really do with it i had a lot of friends that played in some of those bands and whatnot was cool but it just this wasn't my thing mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. So where, like, what were the bands that you kind of felt Pitchfork felt in, fell like in line with? Was it more of the stuff that was happening in San Diego at that point? Yeah. Our friends' bands. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
um, it, it definitely seemed like like that was kind of like not only our musical home, but just like kind of like as far as attitude where we were coming from, we identified with them for sure. And you guys never made it out of California, right? No, I mean, made it we out, did sorry. a tour. We, we, we did it. We did a tour. We did a couple little tours. Like we did one thing. I, don't, I mean, I don't think we ever went above like Chico, you know, okay. in California. Yeah. So yep. we did play a couple shows with Fugazi, which was, you know, a dream come true. Mm-hmm. We did play some shows with Blast, which was another band that we, I was really into. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just kind of a bass player kind of decided he wanted to move. We got another bass player and, uh, and then he said he kind of decided to move and it was like, oh, I don't want to get a third bass player. I think that's just it for now. Why was, why did you guys stay on Nemesis? Cause you guys do a few records on Nemesis. Like, why did you not like, I guess go with a, a local label or one of the more kind of like labels, I guess, where you would have felt like, you know, like you said that where more of the bands were kind of part of the same sort of mentality that you guys had. We like Frank, you know, and we like yeah. some of the bands and, 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 to be honest with you, I don't think anyone else would, would have even been interested, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that was just the feeling at the time, but we felt, we felt lucky that Frank wanted to put out a record, you know, it was like, and also, you know, because the whole process of putting out a record was so, seemed so mystical, we didn't even think about the option of us putting it out ourselves, which we could have easily done and probably should have, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we were just kind of like, okay, someone's going to some you know someone wants to put out a record awesome you know it was uh it it just seemed like um yeah like i said i i really don't think anyone else would have been been that into it is it like it's and it's also i guess a couple years before because there's you know gravity and stuff you know before all that starts happening in san diego too right and before you guys start putting exist yet yeah right that didn't exist the only label that was happening was vinyl communications and i think they were mainly just at that time, at least focusing on putting out their own records by the bands that they were in. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what, how did Pitchfork kind of wrap up? Like what was the, you know, I guess, is it just membership changes or? Yeah, we played, yeah, it was just kind of like, we're going to lose a second bass player. And it just seemed like, it seemed like, you know, I don't know. It just, it just seemed like just the band was, you know, the first bass player, Don, he was a big part of the band. He wrote, a lot of the, a lot of the music as well, and um, and his and the way he played bass was kind of what made our our sound unique. Um, and then when we got the second bass player, Nick, he's played completely different, but it was great. It kind of took our our sound in a different direction. And then it was like now we're going to find a third person that's going to be like of that kind of caliber. It just seemed like uh, maybe we should start all over again. And I think also for me, my tastes were kind of changing a bit and I was just looking to do something a little different, you know? Yeah. So yeah. What happened in the immediate kind of aftermath? Did you have any other bands before drive like Jehu or? No, no. I just knew I really wanted to play with, uh, with Mike from drive like Jehu. You know, I, I was writing songs and I knew I still wanted to play with Rick as well. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Mike was in a band called night soil man who were, they were the best band in San Diego at the time. And, um, they have what do they a, sound like? Well, it's it's really they it's really hard to 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 kind of describe their yeah. sound because so much of it was about the live element and the performance element of what they did. Um and, and some of that just obviously just doesn't translate yeah. to record. But musically it was 
very repetitive um, with with Mark Trombino and Mike Kennedy playing bass and uh, drums and bass. I mean, there's that rhythm section that, you know, was was so locked in and very impressive. Mm-hmm. And um, a singer, uh, her name is Rosebud, who was very charismatic, very dramatic. And, um, and, the, and the, and the guitars were just kind of, could be kind of just like noise at times. And at other times just kind of like these simplistic riffs, but just anything atop that rhythm section was going to sound pretty good. Cause it was undeniably like super great sound. Nothing. I had never heard anything like that before, you yeah. know? And so that's really what I wanted to play guitar with that you know mm-hmm. i really wanted to play with those dudes really bad so mike and i started playing and then uh, we played with a couple drummers because i don't think mark was really that interested and finally i think mark was just kind of like oh you're gonna play with the, the two dudes from pitchfork cool i want yeah i'll check it out and <laughs> um yeah yeah we had this one drum actually we had a drummer chris for a while chris bratton and we had like pretty much half a set with him we were probably pretty close to playing a show um, and he had been in a bunch of bands, some of them on Nemesis. Well, he's was, a great drummer. What bands was he in? I'm trying to. He was in. What bands was he in? He was in a band called Justice League. Oh fuck was, yeah, the Pre Chain of Strength band. Was, yeah, and I think he was in Chain, Chain of Strength too. Oh shit, yeah, okay. And he was in. Um, I don't know. Was he in Inside Out? I don't know if he was. I, or I think not. maybe I don't he remember. was. Because I know there's he some connection between Justice League. Yeah, he was in a bunch of those bands from uh, the Inland Empire. Yeah. and uh, But that was the problem. He lived in the Inland Empire. He lived in, like, Riverside. We were in San Diego. We just weren't practicing enough. Things mm-hmm. weren't moving fast enough for me. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. So Mark's like, I'll do it. So And then as soon as we started playing with Mark, we, I mean, we started practicing, like, three days a week, and it became very consistent, and and the band's sound started changing rather rapidly and uh yeah it was cool and and so i guess like is is it headhunter that you guys signed to first yeah so headhunter so nemesis was through cargo records yeah and cargo records a canadian company yes had it these is partners had these partners you know as you know they're the biggest indie distributor mm-hmm. in canada and i think there was like three or four people involved and they kind of splintered one of them moved to Chicago and started um, a label out of Chicago um, distributed through, through cargo. One of the silent partners in cargo moved to San Diego and decided he didn't really want to be silent anymore. And he wanted to kind of do a cargo San Diego. So he started, uh, started distributing in the U S out of here, out of San Diego, as well as kind of funding, these different labels. Nemesis was one of those, those labels. There's a guy named Kane Boychuk who had worked in pressing plants in Los Angeles and put out records as well. Um, uh, and he moved to San Diego to help kind of run operations. And he decided he wanted to do a label called Headhunter. So it was all, it was all kind of the same thing in the sense that it was all through cargo, but, um, just different people kind of like picking the bands. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I started working at Cargo just because I was like, I wanted to kind of see how things work. Mm-hmm. And uh, working at a record label seemed like a, a fun thing to do. And um, so, yeah, so it seemed kind of like a natural thing just to kind of be on a San Diego label. 
at the time, uh, I guess you you already are friends with O, right? Like, because all of Long yeah, was on yeah. Nemesis as well. Yeah, yeah. O, o was like, O was like, he would come to Pitchfork practices um, really early on. I mean, he was the one that was like, when we were looking at trying to find um, a producer to produce our record and looking at the back of these album covers going, so who's, you know, where are we going to record the seven inch? He was actually the one that was like, you just produce it yourselves. And we were like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean all these records they say produce and there's a person that does that he's like no you just you just go and tell them what you want and <laughs> and you don't need anyone to to produce it you just go and do it and so O was always there early on and giving us good advice and um always just a great friend and still is yeah absolutely and and someone who is you know several times run really awesome labels like put out the first decry seven inch yeah, yeah, that half skull. Uh, yeah, the half skull comp. Yeah, that thing's awesome. So I had that before I knew him. You know, and like and so at at that point, I guess with Drive Like Jehu, were you guys already like this is going to be a real band? Like we want to take it to this next level, or is that something that just developed? Yeah, I think we. I mean, as real as what we thought real was at the time. Yeah, yeah we wanted to be a real band. Yeah, for sure. But we like wanted to play shows and tour. We wanted to put out records and we wanted to tour. At least we thought we did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's the first thing that goes when you're in a band. Right. <laughs> Passion for the road. Um, so uh, w- was there like a following for you guys out of the gate in San Diego? Like how did you guys fit in with, I guess. Definitely there was in, in San Diego. I mean, not, not, not massive. Yeah. But yeah, um, because Pitchfork kind of, you know, we broke up and kind of, um, you know, got a little bit more popular after we broke up and night soul man was already a very popular band in San Diego. Mm-hmm. I think there was just interest from, from the get go in San Diego. Just like, what is this going to sound like? What is this going to be? And, um, yeah. So, so we did, we did, we did just fine here in San Diego. It was just when we left, that it was just kind of hard to, to find an audience. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause like, you know, you obviously, I'm sure are well aware of this. You set a sonic template that a lot of bands now emulate, but I guess at the time there's not really a lot of stuff happening that I think you would have, you know, from an outside perspective would have fit in naturally with. Yeah. I mean, we fit in great with all the bands from San Diego because although yeah. um, there wasn't a whole lot of like maybe crossover in terms of like influences and whatnot. Um, it's just the more the spirit of which the music was made was really, you know, similar to a lot of the bands that were happening here and playing like the Shea Cafe mm-hmm. and then later the Casbah, you know. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, our tours were, you know, it's sparse, sparse crowds. And because we were so adamant to kind of like hit people with the volume, we tended to clear the rooms too a bit, you know. So if there was people there, they wouldn't be there by the end of the show. So I guess... I- at what point are you also doing or starting to, to, to do rocket? They kind of happen simultaneously. I mean, driver J started a little bit before, mm-hmm. but not much. Mm-hmm. And what's, um, the, what's the influence on that? Is that like, you know, cause it's, you know, once again, sonically very different types of bands, but who are, who are kind of driving you to do want to do something like that? Well, I think it was just more about, um, a literal return to, to punk music. Because like I said, I didn't really feel that like bands like the Sex Pistols, you know, initially were, were, were all that interesting. 
Mm-hmm. And so retroactively, I started getting into maybe not necessarily them, but but just, you know, like The Damned, you know, one of my favorite bands. I was kind of, they weren't one of the first bands that I got into, even though they are kind of the first band, really, you know, yeah, yeah. in terms of putting out a, a, a punk record. Um, so, yeah, I, I you know, and kind of really got into the Ramones again, although I already liked them, kind of like appreciated them even more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the saints and just stuff like that and wanted to kind of do something that was a lot more fun and a lot more rock and roll and something that was easy in terms of people who wanted to just play and play anywhere and get out of San Diego and we're all up for just like rock and roll tourism, you know, let's just get out of here and, and play some shows. <laughs> were, were those back from the grave comps or those kill by death comps, something you were aware of at that point? I don't know when they came out, but I became aware of them, yeah. but not when we, not when we started, definitely not. Um, and like, was there, you know, you mentioned that amazing kind of garage scene that existed earlier on. Like where were you guys kind of able to fit in at that point? Because like, as you say, sonically, everyone's kind of doing different stuff. Um, I just would go, you know, I would just go yeah. to the shows and as, as a fan, you know, um, didn't really, didn't, there well, wasn't I mean, a whole lot of cross pollinization going on, you know? Yeah. yeah. But I mean, like with Rocket, like, later, like who would, would be later, but not at that time. But who would Rocket kind of play with? Like when you were playing locally, like what kind of bands would you guys play with? Oh yeah. We, so like, I was, was in a band called Olive Lawn. We'd yes. play with them all the time. <laughs> um, we'd play with. Yeah, just all the San Diego bands. Uh, yeah, just tons of San. Just all the bands that ended up being on on Headhunter, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's weird to think now because you know I think you know it's it's so accessible, like what you're doing with Rock from the Crypt, like in a, in a really good way. I mean that, but it's it's almost like at the time I could imagine like Drive like Jay who would have fit in more with people's aesthetic than like like how did people take Rock from the Crypt? Because even when I got to see you guys, you know, a few years later it was just something so different than anything that was happening. Well, we didn't really like grunge music, you know, because (laughs) we thought that those people were just a little bit older and they kind of ruined punk rock a little bit. Like they, they turned into their parents, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so we were like, we're just going to, you know, our, our aesthetic is, and everything is just going to be opposite. And where punk rock started to like be ashamed of, the entertainment aspect of art, we were going to embrace it. You know, we were going to like, we were going to be entertainers as well, (laughs) you know, and and have a little bit of a show. I mean, yeah, we might not have, um, you know, flash bombs going off on stage and whatnot, but we were like, we weren't embarrassed to, to dress the same and to have a shtick and have fun with it. And, to be sincere and sometimes insincere in the same sentence, you know, just have fun with it, you know? So, well, it's, it's like you guys were the band that brought that, you know, first Jackson five concert you went to and that dictaphone cassette that you first heard punk together. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, it was also, it, it came natural, you know, it wasn't like yeah. I sat down at a, on a dry erase board and, you know, <laughs> said, we're going to do this and that, you know, it all just kind of happened. You know, I think the first, first tour we did we were like we're going on tour and the night before we decided to paint all of our equipment red spray paint (laughs) 
and buy all red clothes. And it was just kind of like, I don't know why we did that, but we just did that. And we didn't do that before in San Diego. <laughs> we just wore our clothes. So it was like, oh, well, this is a real tour. So we have to be, okay, now we have to kick up, you know, <laughs> kick up the game a little bit and do something of substance, spray paint and, you know, the same color clothes. It's like <laughs> but, you guys um, took a page from that Malcolm McLaren managing the Sex Pistols book and it was like, okay, now's the communist era. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if it was that. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I, I just think it was just like, well, I like red. You know, I think it was like that kind of more, it was more the thought behind it. Absolutely. Um, we, weren't, we weren't Nation of Ulysses. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have like the propaganda, you yeah. know, or anything. Yeah. And we were, but we liked them a lot, you know, mm -hmm. we were happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, we're also from San Diego, California, you know, and we're, we're, we can't deny the fact that our environment has had huge part of shaping of who we are as people in the music that we make. Even if you can't really say how it just has, you know, mm -hmm. if you can't really describe how it has affected us, it just has. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's like, uh, you know, it, it's just that, like you say, it's, it's, you know, very different approaches than what nation of Ulysses had to it, but you guys were kind of like going to the same point just, but as you say, products of your environment. Yeah. 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 You can't really quantify no. exactly how living here has shaped the sound of the bands that I'm in, but mm -hmm. you just know that it has. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so when you got, when you're going on that first tour the red tour, are people like that you're, you're coming into? Cause that's, you know, the grunge era, um, are, are people at the shows kind of getting on board immediately or is it, well, we only resistance? had, the, we had one record out and, um, it wasn't, it wasn't really, it wasn't, people hadn't really heard it yet, you know, mm -hmm. but luckily there was a couple people booking shows and whatnot who liked it and liked it enough to go, yeah, I want to see this. So we had, we had a little bit of help, in places like Chicago and New York where we had shows that, although, you know, they weren't well attended. I mean, it's a first tour, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, you got to start somewhere and, uh, and they were fine and it was an adventure and we were playing these cities that I'd never been to before. And it was all, yeah, it was all very exciting and new. And, um, and I think we did make an Im impression on people, you know, because it was different, you know, whether or not, or not, it blew them away. I think for some older people who were coming to the shows, I think it reminded them of stuff that they they kind of liked already, you know. Yeah. And that, but they weren't really seeing it being played, you know. And um, and then for the younger people that came out, it was like, you know, you see kind of kids your same age playing music and kind of doing this thing, and it resonates with you because it's like these are my peers. It's funny too, cause you guys, the two bands are in such almost, you know, internationally, obviously locally it's different, but it, it, in such different scenes, like we, I skipped over the merge single, but drive like Jay, who's on a label like merge while, uh, you know, Helter Skelter's putting out rock from the crypt. Like, it just feels like you had your hand in like all the different worlds that were kind of comprising American or international underground music at the time. Yeah, we just didn't say really no to anyone. If anyone <laughs> wanted to do a single, they could have done a Rocket from the Crypt single. I mean, we did a lot of stuff with sympathy for the record industry because mm -hmm. John, he became a friend and he was just, um, you know, he's just a really inspiring person. Just be, he, you know, he turned us on to, to great music and he would, you know, would kind of steer us musically into different directions by just like saying, check this out or check that out, you know. And, um, and sometimes it's just a story that he told 
that has nothing to do with music that ended up like maybe influencing a song or something. So, um, yeah, we were just into, we, I mean, rocket from the crypt practice six days a week for seven to eight hours a day. You know, I mean, there's a reason why we put out so many records. We were, we were always playing, always practicing. I mean, first time we went to England, we practiced the day of our flight in San Diego. We flew, landed in London. And for some reason, <laughs> we felt we needed two days in London to practice before the show. <laughs> Although we had been practicing all week in San Diego, we needed two days to rent out a rehearsal room and practice. So it's just like, it was always just about practice, rehearsal, practice, learning the song, playing them again, playing them again. Yeah, but so, that's, I think that's the reason, like, when I, you know, finally got to see you guys on that warp tour uh, years ago in London, Ontario, or where, no, I think it was some other random city in Southern Ontario, but, you know, all the other bands were coming out doing their thing. And then you guys came out, and it's like, holy fuck, this is a band. Like, you guys were tight, and it just, like, blew everyone off the stage. And I think that's that dedication that very few bands have. Well, again, Black Flag was a, was, an influence, you know, yeah. because we had always heard that they just, the band wasn't just something they did when they got on stage. It was always a band. They were always practicing, you know, it was just always a thing. They, and, and so, yeah. And then, then even like James Brown, you know, how he would just work his bands over, you know, just like we're doing it again, doing it again, mm -hmm. doing it to death. And so <laughs> for, for us, it was like, we just had those stories, you know, whether they were true or not, we were going to use those stories as examples of how to be, how to create something that, that was as good as it could be living by the legend. Right. One thing I've always been super curious about is, well, I guess before I get to this is how did, how did you, the relationship with merge start for drive like Jehu? Um, I think, I don't know how it started. I think it was just like, you know, bands just kind of doing things at the same time, mm -hmm. you know, putting out records and, um, Mac and Laura, you know, just kind of, I think any kind of record that came out, um, was kind of on their radar just because they were, you know, they're such avid music fans and especially at the time kind of keeping up with what was going on and, um, mutual friends, I think stayed with maybe some people that they had, uh, uh, maybe it was a band I'm trying to think, I think we did some shows with maybe seaweed. Maybe that's how it started okay. or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, they reached out and I think I want to say they reached out about doing a rocket thing, maybe even before the drive J thing, but I'm not sure. Maybe I'm, maybe that's not correct, okay. but they reached out eventually about doing stuff by both bands. And, um, you know, we ended up playing shows together and, and they're actually playing here tonight. So I'm going to go check them out. <laughs> oh, the new record's fucking awesome too. Oh, I haven't heard it yet. I'm really stoked to see them though. Oh yeah. Can't wait. Yeah, it was um, a, a great band. Yeah, so it was just it was a uh, it was it was one of those things where it's like here's some people that are kind of doing what we want to do, but they have their shit together <laughs> way more than we could ever have our shit together. <laughs> but then you you get that shit together. And, yeah, but we really liked all the stuff that they were that they they were putting out, and mm -hmm. you know, um, one of my favorite bands of of all time on a roll, like Mac was just such a huge fan of that band and everything and ended up putting out, um, breadwinner, which was, you know, the guitar player pens band that he did after on a roll. And, um, yeah. and yeah, so, so I look 
liked at Merge and still look at them as a great label. But at the time, I was like, man, can't wait to put out a record with these people. You know? <laughs> um, and what about Pusshead? Like, how did that, because, you know, some of the most sought after kind of Rocket Records and, and Pusshead Records, period. Um, how did that relationship start? Yeah, that was that was that was a really great thing for the band. He um he really hooked us up. He uh I don't know. I, I think he heard about us through a friend that worked through skateboarding basically. Yeah. A friend that worked I wanna say he worked at Zorlak at the time. Um but uh yeah, we just kinda knew him for doing art for, for, for skateboard graphics and stuff and turned him on to us and he was just really into it and you know, I grew up really lo- kind of loving his label. You know, I, I mean, Poison Ideas was one of my favorite bands. And um, um, uh, what else did he do? Christ on Parade. I remember seeing driving up to San Francisco just to see them play. Oh, they, um, that killer comp with like Execute and all the in Siege and all the international oh, yeah. stuff. I mean, that was that that record just, yeah. I mean, that was that's one of the best kind of punk comps ever. I mean, Absolutely. It was just, just amazing. Yeah. yeah. He ended up doing um, Final Conflict, which is a band from Long Beach area that I was really into. So, he, I mean, he just had track record of putting out all this stuff that that uh, that I just liked so much. But I hadn't heard Negative Gain from Canada. I have to get the Canadian yeah. thing in there. <laughs> what, what band from Canada? Negative Gain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, wait. Did he do another Canadian band? Um, oh, now I'm going to look bad if I can't think of this. I don't know. He did part one who were from the U.K., uh, uh-huh. and I'm trying to remember, uh, some of the other ones that he would have done around that time, but I don't, I think that, I think it was only negative gain from Canada. He didn't do, you know, it was, I just, he didn't put out a whole lot of records that you could really find even yeah. back then, except for like the LPs and yeah. whatnot. But a lot of that stuff was just, you know, he was just so influenced by like, you know, the misfits in terms of just kind of putting out these very, very rare limited things, you know? I think that's kind of the place where he was coming from. But he liked Rocket and he wanted to do a single. And he also had connections in Japan. So he kind of organized this trip for us to all go over there. And uh, Long Gone John went with us as well. And what? it was just a gr- it was just a great trip. We we toured Japan be- like I think three <laughs> three years before we ever went to the UK. You know, we <laughs> went there. That was the first place we went to outside of the United States was Japan and. It was it was great to go there that early because, you know, at the time, um, you know, none of the bands really had been there yet. Um, and Fugazi how- had been there, but Sonic Youth hadn't been there yet. Yeah, a um, couple, you know, just bands that you would think that would have gone there just hadn't yet because it wasn't really, just wasn't really um, the audience was still kind of growing mm-hmm. for like that kind of music. And I like Japanese hardcore and, and punk is like one of my favorite. You know, yeah, it was awesome. Genre. I got to meet Sakevi from from Gizm. He came what? to the show. Dude, yeah, oh, that's so fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Um, what was he like? Yeah, like you know, he's almost like the Gigi Allen, it, not as horrible, but uh, as Gigi, but definitely as severe sometimes. So, what was that like? Right. So, so you know, I knew the band, and I didn't really know any of the the stories. And we hung out a little bit, and you know, he didn't speak a lot of English, so it was you know, kind of grunting, you know, grunting on my behalf, not his. Yeah. And he had a lot of hand gestures and and, and whatnot. But, uh, he, uh, he's, he was totally cool. It wasn't until after we parted that like some of the Japanese people that we were kind of hanging with from the other bands were just like, Oh, 
It's like, heavy. <laughs> so crazy. I'm like, really? Why? He's like, oh, you bring gun to show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now now they would just pull out their phones and show you the flamethrower video on YouTube. But at that time, right. it's, it's just like uh-huh. these legends. <laughs> right, right. What, what were the bands you guys were playing with in Japan? Uh, Bloodthirsty Butchers. Yeah. Uh, Cop-Ass Grinders. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jet Boys. Um, who else? What about Teen Generate or like that kind of scene in Japan? That w- that didn't exist yet. Okay. They weren't they weren't a band yet. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and this was like '92 when we went over that's there. So I don't so, think they were there. Yeah, that's that is you're right. Before a lot of a lot of bands started, you know, touring there. How did you ever recover? Because that to me is my favorite place to play in the world, and then to have to go back to the reality of what is touring. Like, you know, that would have been a hard one to get over for me. Yeah, I'm with you on that. It's my favorite place, too. I mean, it's like not only to play shows, but just the culture where it's like mm-hmm. after every show, you just kind of end up instead of like necessarily going to a bar, you just kind of go to a restaurant and eat and drink with this large group of people. And it's something that I wish we could do here mm-hmm. easily. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just still to this day. I'm just like, man, I wish that that phone call would ring with someone asking us to go over there and play. Um, We would go there all the time. I mean, uh, you know, some years we would go twice in a year, you know, so it, it, and it just kind of like, as their kind of musical world change in terms of the stuff that people are into that phone call started happening less and less. What were those tours like early on though, that when you're going over there twice a year, is it like, are you are you well, just playing with local bands or are you playing with American bands? We're playing with local bands. We did do some shows with the Blues Explosion one time because we happened to be there at the same time and and that worked out. But for the most part, we just would play with with local bands. And you know, one of the cool things was just to see how how culturally you know it kind of changed over there. And um, you know, the first time we went over there, you know. After the first song, just dead silence. After the second song, like no one would clap or even make a noise mm-hmm. between the songs. And then at the end of the show, then everyone would applaud, you know. And then by like the second or third time we're there, then you see people starting to like kind of like maybe slam dance a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. And by the fourth time, it's like okay, now they're now they're crowd surfing and now they're like making noise between the songs <laughs> and stuff and that. And so it's like it really it was really kind of neat to kind of just see how, you know, the more bands that would come over there and the more exposure they had to what was going on specifically in, in the United States, but just all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it kind of changed. It was cool. I mean, it was, it was, it was weird. I mean, we would play with some bands like, and they would be punk bands and we'd be walking down the street with them and their girlfriends would be walking behind them. And I'd be like, hey, what's what's up with that? It's like, oh, no, you know, women, they walk in the back. And you're like, and then, like, these are, like, punk bands. They're like, you're like, really? This is, like, what you do, yeah. you know? Well, it's, it's, and, a, it's uh, such a different punk culture, even. Yeah, it, it was it was weird. And now that when you go there, you, you don't really see that anymore, at mm-hmm. least not from, like, people who are playing music that – Rebel music. <laughs> yeah, rebel music. <laughs> what was, when did, Guitar Wolf starts in what, 93? What was that? Gu- Guitar Wolf, I think, started in like 93, right? Or 90, yeah. is that later? I don't, I don't know when he started, but I definitely saw him play a show over there. 
It was amazing. It was awesome. It was early on, and it was uh, we just so happened to to uh, to be at this club where where we was playing, and yeah, it was just just so good, so amazing when he started out. Well, yeah, because at a certain point, did it feel like the rest of the world was kind of catching on to what Rockin' the Crypt was doing? Like as far as like other bands started forming, and it felt like you know the grunge grunge was dead at a certain point, and there was like new mm-hmm. new stuff. Yeah, you know, to tell you the truth, I think, I think I don't, I would not attribute that to anything that we were doing. I think we kind of got leapfrogged a bit, you know, in the sense that people's tastes were, you know, like we we might have been partially a reaction to like the grunge thing, and I think what came after us was a reaction to kind of like what we were doing or like what was happening in the '90s with with a lot of bands maybe getting snatched up by if not major labels, labels that had some money and were kind of like investing in the, this music and bands kind of saying, okay, well, there's a chance that we can be very popular and whether or not it was conscious or not. I think a lot of bands made some tame music thinking that that um, that they could kind of make a career out of this thing that turned out, you know, that started as, as a hobby. So I think what came after was music more, you know, there was a lot of like, kind of garage music for la- lack of a better kind of description, things that were kind of decidedly recorded, you know, kind of primitive and, mm. and, and, um, and I think that, I think that kind of is what was, what was going on, you know, and we were into all that stuff, you know, it's just that when, you know, I mean, the Gories were such an influential band for Rocket from the Crypt and Drive Like Jehu as well. I mean, there, there really can't be a band that influenced one and not the other if I like it, you know? Yeah. It still yeah. influences kind of my guitar playing and how I how I kind of think about music. But I don't know. I think it's um, it just when when we would hear those sounds we just and, and regurgitate them, they just kind of came out different, you know? Yeah. No, and, and I think you know, in you're talking about those bands that get signed to these major labels and put out uncompromised and like put out a compromised kind of product. You, both your bands put out the most uncompromising major label kind of releases. Like, you know, if anything, it, it's like you're going harder. Well, we you know we we had to really think about whether or not we wanted to do this. You know, it was not it was not like an easy decision when when it came to like hooking up with with a major label, but you know, we were on cargo records and we weren't really getting, you know, not to throw anyone under the bus, but we weren't getting, we weren't really getting any support from them. You know, we didn't know what was, what was going on and we weren't really seeing royalties. We weren't seeing anything, you know? So it was like this, how, how can that, this be worse than that? And plus they're going to give us this money. That's going to enable us to kind of like pay our rent for a year we go and play some shows and write a record. And so it just seemed kind of like one of those things where it's like, just seemed like a great opportunity. It didn't seem like an opportunity to be like, we're, we, we knew we were never going to be the next Nirvana. It wasn't about that at all. It was more about like, this is going to allow us to kind of just do this full on for a little bit. Let's go for it. What was like the the people at Interscope's expectations? Like, were they like you guys are going to be? Well, they the probably next wanted Nirvana. the next Nirvana. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like yeah. that's what everybody did. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I remember. Oh man, <laughs> just sitting in these meetings with you know because we talked to everybody because the way it worked back then, if, if one person was in, interested, 
then they were all interested. Yeah. You know, that's just the way it went, you know. So we flew out to New York. They, you know, the labels flew us out to meet with all the labels out there. We would go up to Los Angeles, meet all the labels up there. And, you know, they, with Drive Like Jehu, they were like, you know, <laughs> I forget what label it was, but they were just like, like, you know, okay, this is like the artistic band. And so, um, you know, their pitches would be so funny sometimes. Like, so, you know, obviously we're all about like, like bands having complete artistic control. And, you know, I am the one that did come up with the aha video with, and, and so, you know, obviously I know, I know all about artistic integrity and this and that. And you're like, just rolling your eyes and biting your tongue. Like, Oh God, barf, get me out of here. Um, they would compare driver J to like, Oh, it's like Genesis and listen to Genesis. Now they didn't start out like that, you know, <laughs> in the beginning. It was like, Oh God. You just don't know, do you? <laughs> Pretty funny. But, what, were, um, like, what was the culture of that label like? Because obviously Interscope put out. Uh, well, Interscope was was the coolest one. That's why we ended up one. hooking up with them. Yeah, yeah like uh, uh, this woman Anna Statman, who's still a super good friend mm-hmm. of mine. She was like she used to work at Slash, and she um, was like the first bass player for the Gun Club, and she oh, fuck. was the one that was like, you know what? you should go talk to all these other labels and stuff because you only get to do this once. And so just, you know, do the dog pony show and just have fun with it. And once you do that, come back and whatever anyone offers you, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to give you more money. If that's, if the money's the thing, you know? And so it was all, she was very candid and everything. And so sure enough, we went back to her and we just connected with her. You know, she, she was the first one, that was interested in drive like Jehu, you know, she hadn't even heard rocket from the crypt. She came out and she's, she came and saw us play. I want to say like, you see Irvine, the show was like 30 people and, uh, gave me her car and she's like, yeah, you know, give me a call. You know, if, if, if you want to do something, you know, totally low pressure, but she was like interested from a very kind of early point. So yeah, it the vibe was fine. You know, there's a honeymoon period. Everyone's, totally stoked and then you put out your record and then they're just like what the fuck and she has to go and defend it and say listen you know it's art it's not you know we're we're it's not about this one record you know so well and and, and that's the thing is like you know like i guess that's the thing you really want from any label is that commitment that they're going to be with your band after that honeymoon period well they all say that that they will you know of course but but, you know, I think what was going on with a lot of uh, the labels, they were so fat off of CDs because they cost nothing to make and the markup was higher than an LP. And they were just, they were really able to, to do really well, you know, and um, off even like back catalog stuff, you know, like, you know, all of a sudden everyone has to go buy the new, you know, the meatloaf CD now, you know, yeah. <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know, all the old records that they already have. They have to buy them all over again for mm-hmm. twice as much money. So, mm-hmm. um, I think, I think you know, in theory, they they thought that they were going to be able to kind of um, support some of these artists and develop them, basically. But things changed, and just as soon as they started, the wheels started to come off, you know. And um, not so much for us, but just you know, just for all the bands, you know, mm-hmm. everybody got dropped. I mean we saw the writing on the wall. So we had to beg, you know, to, to basically be released from the label. Um, 
our, our friend Anna wasn't working there anymore. And we were like, well, if she's not here, we don't want to be here because we don't have a connection to yeah. really anyone else here, you know? So, um, yeah, and that was it. Well, John, I could punish you all day, and there's so many more things I want to nerd out about, but I, I got I to gotta let you go on and live your life. But at some point, can you come back for a part two? Yeah, yeah, you call me whenever. I'm always here, and I'm usually not doing anything. Oh, uh, dude, thank you so much. Thank you, John, for coming on the show. And John will be back for many more parts. As you heard right there, John was, <laughs> well, he opened the door. So expect a lot of calls, buddy. No, I'm just kidding. But we will definitely have more parts in the future with John because I think that was uh, whew, I had a fun time doing that one. Hot Snakes, of course, have a brand new record, Jericho Sirens on Sub Pop. Sub Pop also just reissued all their amazing catalog. So grab some Hot Snakes, you know, Drive Like Jehu, classic band, Rock from the Crypt, classic band. There's a lot more to talk about with John. Oh, my gosh. We got some good times next week coming up. Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you, because next week on the show, maybe one of the greatest British songwriters of all time, in my opinion, Peter Perrette of the band The Only Ones. Now, you may know them as the band that wrote Another Girl, Another Planet, one of the greatest power pop songs of all time. But he also was in England's Glory and The Only Ones catalog. If you're only familiar with that song... Oh my gosh, are you missing out? It goes deep. This is an incredible episode, an incredible conversation with a guy who a lot of people wrote off, had an incredibly difficult battle with um, with opiates and, and heroin and, and has fought through it and come through it and crack. Also, I, I, I don't want to be salacious about the drug issues that he had because, you know, he's come through it and all through it, he was the greatest songwriter like one of the greatest songwriters of all time, like just hands down, like this guy can write a song that is next week on the show. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, thank you to Tristan for setting up this John Reese episode. Uh, thank you to Kim and Brian. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you. Uh, thank you everyone. Go there and make your own culture and I will see you next week. Bye.